Thanks for tuning in to a sermon from Redemption Hill Church. If you're in D.C., we'd love for you to come and join us and become a part of the church family. If you're outside of D.C., we'd love for you to find a church family to get plugged into and invest your life in where you can be held accountable and they can care for you. If you'd like to support the ministries of Redemption Hill Church, you can give online at redemptionhilldc.org. Um, my name is Chuy Rodriguez, and I see a lot of new faces, which is awesome. Uh, so I'm going to extend my introduction. I am uh, Mexican and American. I came two years ago to Redemption Hill after planting a church in Mexico City, sent by Redemption Hill five years prior to that. And um, my, wife's, my wife is from this area. She's uh, from El Salvador, but born here. I have four kids, and it's great to be with you. I am the associate pastor of Redemption Hill, and it's my privilege today to share the word of God with us. And um, before I, I jump in, I just want to uh, give you a little bit of an introduction of what we're going to be doing today. Uh, we are in our series of the book of Romans, but we're taking a, a small break, and we're going we're gonna to talk about uh, an important topic, and that's Christian living. How are we supposed to live out our faith in today's society, especially in 2020? And we are going to be utilizing the statement of faith of our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, to expound on Christian living. Um, I was just finishing this past week my uh, document, my paper for ordination, and uh, I studied all of the articles of our statement of faith, and the one that I enjoyed the most was actually this one, uh, Christian living. And um, before I continue, I just saw Bill, and I remember he asked me to say something. And so next Sunday, we're going to have baptisms so if you're interested in getting baptized, please let us know. We would love to uh, baptize you. Uh, reach out to me or Pastor Bill or Jess, and we'll, we'll give you all the details. But um, if you want to do it, uh, come ready. We have stuff here to, uh, next, for next week if you also want to do it on the spot. We're okay with that. But, uh, yeah, baptisms follow the following Sunday. So the EFCA is a denomination that is an association of, uh, and a fellowship of autonomous and interdependent churches uh, united around the same statement of faith. And we are, as, a, as a Redemption Hill, a part of this denomination. And Article 8 is considered by some in the, in the denomination the greatest addition, or, uh, addition, uh, addition to the statement of faith in, in the last uh, 50 years. So we're going to talk about and expound on what does it mean to be a Christian in our, in our day. So let's go ahead and pray, and then we're, we're going to dive in. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your, uh, your word. Uh, thank you for allowing us to be here today. And I pray that uh, through your spirit, you will bring conviction, that you will um, highlight our sin, but at the same time, highlight your grace for us, and that this message of the gospel will... Um, Enable us and equip us, empower us to, to go outside of our comfort zone and bless others in our community, in our church, and in the world. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. So I want to read the article first. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be on your screen. And the article of uh, our statement of faith, and you can find this on our website as well. Article 8 says, we believe that God's justifying grace must not be separated from his sanctifying power and purpose. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially. 
and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. In obedience to Christ's commission, we are to make disciples among all people, always bearing witness to the gospel, to the gospel in word and deed. So I'd like to take each part of this article and, and just expound on what does it mean to live out our faith in 2020. The first thing I want to say is that justification always produces sanctification. This comes out of the first paragraph of our statement of faith. That God's justifying grace cannot be separated from his sanctifying power. If you're not familiar with these terms, I just want to clarify. Justification and sanctification are both part of what we know as our salvation. Contrary to common belief, our salvation is not a thing or a prayer or a moment. In fact, the reformers referred to, it, referred to it as a chain, a process that includes election, calling, regeneration, faith and repentance, justification, sanctification, and it culminates in glorification. And even though some of them happen simultaneously at a specific moment, all of them are part of the process that we call salvation. And it will end in the new heaven and the new earth. The Bible talks about our salvation as something that was accomplished for us before. In the past, we are saved. The Bible also refers to our salvation as something that's happening. We are being saved. And something that will, be, will, will happen in the future will be saved when we are finally in the presence of Jesus. So we can't think of salvation as just one event. It's, it's, it's a process. It's, it's different events happening throughout our life. But justification is a legal term that declares that we are or that we have been made right with God through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Justification is that declaration of not guilty before the ultimate judge who is the Father. It is the verdict of our sins are forgiven by grace alone. And this is something that applies to every child of God. It is the forgiveness of our sin. It is, it is part of our salvation. But our justification cannot be separated from the ongoing process that we call sanctification. Sanctification is a process in which God, through his spirit, is conforming us. He's shaping us to the image of Christ. In contrast with justification, sanctification requires our work and effort as well as God's work. Justification is something that happens. It's a declaration that happens in a moment. But sanctification is an ongoing process that we go to. So, even though we have already been saved, we are being saved. And our faith, our justification always produces sanctification. The process in which we are being shaped into becoming more like Jesus. And sanctification is evidenced through works. We can't separate our faith from our works. We can't say that Jesus has declared us not guilty and not Act upon that. If you are justified, 
then you are being sanctified. Every Christian who has been justified by the grace of God is, is inevit inevitably producing works. Works that shape us into the image of Jesus. Sanctification is sometimes a process that is also painful and sometimes we don't like, but it's also part of our Christian life. The, uh, James, the brother of Christ, talks about this in, in, his, in his epistle, and I want to read this with you. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 19. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Saying that we believe, saying that we have faith is not enough. Saying that we have been justified is not enough. Enough. There has to be evidence of our salvation. Our justification always produces sanctification. So if you are saved, if you say you are saved, and you don't have works, your faith is death. Meaning, in a way, that your faith or the faith that you say you have is fake. Because faith always produces life. And in a way, we could say that the life of the faith are the works. And we have a book that actually expounds on our statement of faith. It was written by Greg Strand and Bill Kynes from our denomination. And in this book called Evangelical Convictions, Greg Strand and Bill Kynes say, There is such a thing as dead faith. In James' words, a faith without works, the faith of demons. Faith that does not have works is the same faith that the demons have. And we must remember, there is someone who also knows the Bible better than us. His name is Satan. There are other beings that also believe in Jesus Christ as the Son of God, and those are demons. But the difference between them and us is that we must act upon our faith. Dominican pastor Miguel Nunez says, Are you a Christian that, uh, who believes the Bible or a Christian who lives it? Only those who live it truly believe it. Faith without works is dead. In the same way that justification always produces sanctification. My second point is that loving God always produces, produces loving others. And this follows from the second part of our statement of faith, or Article 8, that says God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially and to live our faith with care for one another, compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. So another inseparable parallel that Scripture highlights is that we cannot say that we love God 
and not love others. In the same way that we can't say we have faith in, in, in God and not have works, we cannot say we love God and not love others. One is a consequence of the other. Loving God will always lead us to love others. And Jesus clearly said this to us. In Matthew 22, verses 36 to 40, he, he was being tested by the Pharisees, by Pharisees, and they told him, Teacher, which is a great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, You shall love your, the, the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And listen to what he says. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. The entire law and the prophets depend on these two closely tied commandments. Family, we can't say, we cannot say that we love God if we do not love others. And I'd like to clarify that this word love here is not just a feeling. It's not like you love food or you love a, a, a teddy bear or anything else. No, this is not what, this, this, what Jesus is saying. It's not enough to, to feel sorry for somebody or say, oh, those people are great. No, loving people implies a sacrifice. Look at how Jesus said it in Matthew 5. He said, you have heard it that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We need to hear that one more time in 2020. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his son, he, God, makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. And sends his reign on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How challenging is this? We are to love everyone, especially those who are difficult to love. The perfect God of the universe gives sun and rain to people to, that, that sometimes curse him. People who have rebelled against him. He gives him the sun. He gives him blessings. And he calls us to do the same. We cannot say that we love God and not love others. If we love God, we have to love his image bearers. These parallels of our Christian living are very clear. Christian living in this year Means that if we know we are justified, we must also know that we are being sanctified. That if we have faith, we are obligated. That faith that we say we have will inevitably produce works. If we say we love God in 2020, then we must love others as well. And we must do it sacrificially. 
Because loving your enemy and loving the ones who curse you or persecute you, it's, persecute you is not easy. And loving others sacrificially is the exact same way that God has loved us. And this is not a small aspect of our Christianity, especially today, especially in Washington, D.C. It is radical. It is so radical that the, that the Apostle John said in 1 John 4.20, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. We are lying if we say we love God and we, not, and we don't love others. And this is important to hear. Especially in a political, politically divided nation and city. Are we loving the other? Are we loving and praying the other? And I'm talking to both the right and the left and the center. Are we, are we, are we living our Christian life the way that we're supposed to be a Christian? Because we all have our Christian, both sides have their Christian flag and say, no, this is the right thing to do. No, this is the Christian thing to do. But we forget that the Christian, the real Christian thing to do is to love each other. The real Christian thing to do is not fight for policies, even though that's part of it. The real Christian thing to do right now is to love each other. And, and we, have to, we have to hear this. God commands us to love him supremely and others sacrificially, meaning it's going to cost you. If it's easy to love your brother, then you're not making an effort. You're not actually loving them like the way God loved you. If it's hard to love, then you're doing it right. To live out our faith... With care for one another. The emphasis on this part of, of this article is on our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is an important thing to highlight today. The reality is that there is constant shunning, labeling, arguing, and even belittling of our brothers and sisters, especially those who differ from our views and opinions. This is hard. But we are to care for one another. Our Christian living in 2020 implies, requires that we love one another. We care for one another. And the Bible calls us to do many things for one another. The Bible calls us to honor one another. The Bible calls us to live in harmony with one another. Everything I'm quoting is from a scripture in the Bible that talks about your brother and sister in the church. We are called to not pass judgment on one another, to serve one another, to be kind to one another, to submit to one another, to carry each other's burdens, to bear with each other, to forgive each other, to encourage one another. This is just a short list. In short, 
we are to love one another. And to be completely honest, some of us, including me, have actually begun to even hate people that we used to consider brothers and sisters because they have different views. I have engaged in arguments with people that I consider close friends. And now I'm doubting their salvation just because they think different from me. And that's everybody today. Today, our call is a challenge to live the Christian way in Washington, D.C. by loving others. By loving others despite our differences. Loving your brother and sister is more important than anything else. We need to hear this. Are we doing this? Are we loving our brothers? Are we praying for our brothers? Are we submitting, encouraging, honoring each other as children of God? Or are we trying to win an argument? We are to love one another. But the other does not only include the people in our church or in other churches or people that we consider being our brothers and sisters in Christ. It also includes the people outside of our faith community. The article says, and to live out our faith with care for one another, compassion towards the poor, toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. Loving God means that we love our church family, but it also includes the people outside of our church, especially those who are in need, especially the poor, especially the oppressed, and especially the marginalized, discriminated, and vulnerable. This is as important as loving our brothers and sisters. And this is also something that we need to hear in 2020. And this is also radical. It's so radical that God himself told us that if we love the poor, the needy, we love him. If we serve the needy, we serve him. He said it in Matthew 25. In fact, he utilizes this as how he knows who are his real followers. Listen to what he said in Matthew 25. Jesus says, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit in his glorious throne. Before him will, will be gathered all the nations, and will, he will separate people from one, one from another as, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on the right, Come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? 
And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. This is incredibly important today. Note that the kinds of needs that Jesus highlights here are not random, but very intentional, basic needs of any human being. He says the hungry, the, the thirsty, the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the prisoner, the prisoner. These are the people who don't have food, are lacking water, don't have a home or a family. They don't have clothing. They, are, they, they lack health, and they don't have freedom. These are the people that Jesus is referring to for us to care for. As Christians, we are commanded to seek the welfare of our city, and especially pay attention to the poor, the foreigner, the immigrant, the asylum seeker, the vulnerable, the orphan, the unborn, the single mom, the widow, the homeless, the enslaved, the oppressed, the marginalized, the discriminated, the sick. And when we meet their needs, we are serving God himself. Proverbs 19 goes as far as saying that whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord. And he will repay him for his deed. Loving the people outside of our church is loving God himself. We cannot separate loving God from loving others inside and outside of our church. And I love that our statement of faith uses two words that are very controversial today. Compassion and justice. Compassion and justice. And I want to clarify. Compassion and justice are biblical words. Those two words constantly appear throughout the Old and the New Testament. There are so many verses that call God's people to show compassion and justice. I don't even have time to, to read them all. If you want to, please grab the book Evangelical Convictions. Go to article number 8 and read it by yourself. But I'd like to clarify something for us. Showing compassion and seeking justice does not make you a Marxist or a communist. Showing compassion and seeking justice for the poor and the widow and the immigrant and the unborn makes you more like Jesus. It makes you a Christian, a person who, like Jesus, befriended and cared for the poor, the widow, the prostitute, the drunkard, the tax collector. Showing compassion and seeking justice makes you a Christian. And this is sad to see in Christianity today. In many American churches, and, and not only American, all through, I'm from Mexico, and that's happening too. We have divorced our Christian responsibility from compassion and justice. We have allowed parachurch ministry, ministries to take that responsibility as, as if it wasn't ours. We have even coined phrases like, all we need is to preach the gospel. No, we don't. We need to do both. We need to preach the gospel and we need to care for the poor. Phrases like that create false dichotomies that hurt our witness in a world that desperately needs us. 
Peruvian theologian Samuel Escobar is helpful here in asserting that Christ's mission also involves compassion, resulting from an immersion among the multitudes. This does not mean a sentimental explosion among the multitudes, nor an academic option for the poor, but rather specific intentional acts of service with the aim of feeding the multitudes with bread for life and also with the bread of life. The mission includes confrontation of the powers of death with the power of the suffering servant. And thus, suffering becomes the mark of Jesus' messianic mission, a fruit of battling injustice and the powers and principalities. I am afraid that this way of understanding our mission as Christians is not very popular today. We have forgotten that we are the salt and the light of the world. But Jesus commands us to live that way, to live in a way that affects our society with good works. I want to read this passage of Matthew 5, when Jesus calls us to be the light of the world. He says, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how, should, how shall its saltiness be restored It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on the people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it, put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven." Another Hispanic theologian from Ecuador named René Padilla in expounded this, this passage says, Salt was used to preserve food as much as to enhance food. And the emphasis here is on salt's capacity to preserve and prevent decay. The Christian presence is called to fulfill a function of impeding corruption in the midst of a corrupt society. Padilla goes on to highlight that we are not only called the light of the world as an indicative, but we are also given an imperative from Jesus. We are commanded to shine our good works before the world. Intentionality is key to this passage. We are to show our good works before the world for the world to see, so that in order, in turn, they will glorify the Father. This division in the church is not new. We saw it in so many, at so many different stages. We saw it with the people who were fighting against slavery. We saw it in the civil rights movement. We even saw it in Latin America. There was a church that was hand in hand working with the conquistadores and the church of the indigenous people. There's always been two churches. And I'm afraid we are facing, again, a division. There's always been the church that sides with the elites and the power, and the church that has sided with the poor. 
an incredible example of, of a story that I came across is the story of the Spanish Jesuit, a priest named Pedro Claver, or Peter Claver, who went to the New World, new to the Europeans, and he arrived as a novice from Spain who was not ordained yet, and he lived in Cartagena, Colombia. He witnessed the abuses of the indigenous people by, by the Spaniards, and he also witnessed the horrors of the slave trade in Colombia, who was a hot, a hot spot. After completing his six years of study in order to become a priest, he made a decision that nobody else had made before. He took a vow that every Jesuit must take, and it includes three things, poverty, chastity, and obedience. But he added a fourth one, and he vowed to be a slave to blacks. He earned the title of the Apostle of the Negroes, and he dedicated his entire ministry to fight and care for them. In talking about his last days, Pedro Claver's last days, Cuban theologian Justo Gonzalez says, towards the end, bedridden, unable to move, and made to lie in his filth, he thanked God for the opportunity to experience something what his flock had experienced in the slave ships. This is a Christian who even though was trained and formed and sent by the very church who helped through the encomiendas and, 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 and other ways to conquer a land, decided to be a light and salt of the world. And like him, there is thousands of unheard Christians, one of them being Martin Luther King. As Christians today, we are to love each other, care for one another, show compassion toward the poor, and justice for the oppressed. So in review, we, we have to be coherent in our faith. We cannot say we're justified and not be sanctified. We cannot say we love God and not love others. My last point is, Christian living always produces spiritual warfare. With God's word, the Spirit's power, and fervent prayer in Christ's name, we are to combat the spiritual forces of evil. Everything we are seeing today is spiritual warfare. Christian living is a constant battle. It's a fight. It's a grind. It's a war. Everything we're witnessing is the consequence of sin in our world. Everything we're facing today is literally a war. And we need to hear this. The enemy is not a person. The enemy is not a candidate. The enemy is not a political party or an ideology. The enemy is not your coworker, your friend, your family member who thinks different from you. The enemy is not on social media. The enemy is our own sin, Satan, and our own flesh. 
We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our weapons are not the same weapons the world utilizes. We have the Bible, we have the power of the Spirit, and we have prayer. And this section is so convicting to me because I've been doing all kinds of things that are good and necessary, like studying, reading, talking to others, having conversations. But I've also been in arguments and conflict and labeled brothers and sisters. I've even mocked people who think different from me. I've tried to convince and and show people how, how wrong they are. And I've utilized all my weapons But I have not tapped into the most effective weapons at my disposal for Christian living. The spiritual weapons of prayer, the word of God, and the power of the spirit. And my guess is I'm not the only one. My guess is that most of us are in the same boat. And we need to hear this. In a year of a worldwide pandemic, political division, racial tension, hurricanes, wildfire, earthquakes, and whatever else is coming in the next three months, we have to pray more. We have to rely on the power of the Spirit more than ever. We have to run to Scripture more than ever. We have to. We have no choice. We cannot do this on our own. We are not fighting flesh and blood. And the destiny of our country and our lives do not depend on a person or a party. It depends on the power of the Almighty God. We need to be on our knees, begging for God's mercy for our country. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to give us love, patience, joy, peace, kindness, the fruit of the Spirit, self-control, because we don't have any left. We just can't love people on our strength. We can't show compassion and seek justice on our own abilities. We need God. We need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. And my encouragement today, the challenge for all of us today, is let's turn to him. More than ever, we should be praying. More than ever, we should be fasting. Is that where we run to? Is that the weapon of our choice? You're not going to convince anyone. You are not going to change anyone. There's only one person who has the ability to change people's lives. There's only one book that cuts through the heart, and it's not any textbook you have other than the Bible. Let's focus on talking to God first instead of talking to others. Let's pray for others. Let's show love and patience to others, towards others. Let's recognize that we have been given grace, even though we were enemies of God. Let's recognize that we are rebels who sometimes cursed at God in the face, and he loved us. That is the gospel.
And even though he has already saved us, we still today constantly turn our backs to him and do whatever we want. And he still loves us. Everything we do is in response to the gospel. We love because God loved us and died on the cross for us. We show compassion because Jesus came down and left his throne to show compassion and mercy for us. We are the poor. We are the needy. We are the sinners who don't deserve love. And Jesus died for us. These examples and the stories like Pedro Claver are so powerful because they are a reenactment of the gospel. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus came down and lived amongst us in our filth, and we were slaves to us to sin. And he is our greatest deliverer. So let's do the same. Let's live like salt and light in the world. Because Jesus is our light. And he has saved us by grace. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace. Thank you for the blessing we have of your salvation. Thank you because we didn't earn it. And we don't deserve it. But you have given to us because you love us. I pray that today you will help us live like truly true Christians in such a difficult time. Lord, we acknowledge and recognize that we can't do it on our own. Our sin stop us. It doesn't let us. But only you can do it. Help us, Lord, through your spirit. Pray, fast, intercede during this time. And as a church, Lord, let us be known for compassion and love. <laughs>